about the seven deadly vices, we're calling them, instead of sins, because vices is a better word that captures the idea that these seven vices are patterns, they're channels carved into our hearts that affect the way we think and the way we speak, the way we feel. So they're not just actions, which is somehow times what we think about sin. They're actually ways of being. They're part of our catastrophic disorder against God. And so we're looking during this Lenten season at the chasm between what we wish we were and what we actually are. And we're trying to identify these ways where we might not even know it, that we're opposed to God or we're, we're shielding ourselves from him and therefore proving authors of our own destruction. And I would say as we start this sermon that all of these things, but this one in particular, when we talk about money, it's, it's scary. It's scary for me, but it's scary for y'all because it's such a central feature of our lives. And so it's helpful to remember Augustine saying, who am I, O Lord, to myself but a guide to my own destruction? That wise spiritual authors have often realized if I'm left to my own devices to come up with my own thoughts or to embrace the thoughts that everybody else thinks, then ultimately what I'm going to do is run myself into the ground. I'm going to hope in things that are eventually going to decimate my heart. They're going to strip me of hope. And so today, here in Luke 12, we're talking about greed, which Jesus tells a crowd to be on their guard about. And the problem with this particular vice, this particular pattern of sin, which Paul calls the root of all kinds of evil, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Many people eager for money have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But the problem with this particular sin pattern is that it's so respectable. In fact, if you could pick out a sin pattern for your future son-in-law, this is the one you'd want him to have. You don't want your daughter to marry a slothful person or a lustful person or a gluttonous person, but you'd be pretty okay if they married a greedy person. You'd be totally fine with that. And if you said you wouldn't, you are lying. And that's what makes it hard because it's what spiritual writers would call a respectable sin. It's one of these kinds of sins that if you do it, no one will say anything to you. Oh, well, they might. They'll applaud you. They'll put you on the newspaper. They'll herald you. They'll think you're awesome. That's what people think about people who have money sickness is in our world we think those are the best people. And so that's what makes it so very difficult to identify, so very difficult to do anything about, because all around us we esteem the people who value possessions the most. That's who we value ourselves. Our government doesn't. Our government needs greed to be sanctioned, and so it does things like create, uh, I don't know, some kind of idea where you say, hey, you want free money? 
Because everybody knows you can get free money. You can get a lifetime of free money. Just give us a little bit of money, and you'll win a chance to get some free money. Easy money. You won't even have to lift a finger for it. And if you'll do it enough, we can send a lot of middle-class kids to college. It's called a lottery. And our states sanction the greed and give you compelling commercials about it that say, if you will obey your greed, then our colleges can be well-funded. If you'll just spend your hard-earned money at a chance of something you're not going to win. That's why the Puritans didn't like gambling, because there was no real goods exchanged. Somebody wins, somebody loses. In business, both people should win. Christian way of thinking about commerce is both sides win. So this is what's so very hard about it. It's, it's sanctioned our state, our culture. If you look around and say, who do you value? Who are the heroes in our world? There are people like Warren Buffett. Why do you value Warren Buffett? Well, hopefully you value him in some ways because he has mad skills. He's very intelligent. He's an incredible investor. But in a large way, we value him because he has approximately $22 gazillion. At last count. Or Bill Gates. He has, you know, $19 gazillion. Or professional athletes who get paid only a mazillion dollars, you know, 42 mazillion dollars. These are all technical terms. We think it's awesome when people have lots of money because that means they are something. That means they have a lot of power. That means they are the ones who run the world. That's what we think, which makes it awfully difficult for us even to begin to hear what Jesus is saying. It makes me nervous to talk about it. But we're going to. And Dorothy Sayers says that this is the kind of sin, greed is the kind of sin of the haves against the have-nots. We talked a few weeks ago about envy, which is a sin of the have-nots against the haves. This is a sin of the haves against the have-nots. It's part of the problem with greed. Part of why Jesus says to this man, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus has to say, watch out. Beware! Because, as Tim Keller says, most of the sins you can commit, you're not really that fooled. If a man commits adultery, he doesn't, like, wake up the next day and like, wait a second, you're not my wife. He's not fooled. He knows he committed adultery. But the problem with greed is every single person in here knows somebody greedy. It's just not the person in your seat. Think about that for three seconds. We all know greedy people, but it never occurs to us that it might be us. And so Jesus tells these things. And part of the way of hearing what he says is recognizing that he's actually challenging your view of reality. That's really what he's doing. He's actually talking to his disciples. We're told, meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered, more people than there were at Trump's inaugural address, so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak to his disciples. 
This is a packed house. More people than at a Coldplay concert. And he says, as he starts to talk to them, he starts to warn them. The kingdom of God is breaking out. The rule of the heavens is being set up on earth. And this is going to create not more jobs and shinier teeth. It's going to create conflict, unfortunately. What's going to happen as the king, who's been king all along, breaks in. And this is what the whole Bible is about. The king, who's been king all along, breaking in and saying, I'm going to take back my world now. And I'm going to gussy it up. And I'm going to make people so they're no longer the gods to their own destruction. I'm going to make them the way they're supposed to be. But people don't like to have their authority challenged. And I don't either. And so Jesus is saying, look, here's what's going to happen. They're going to want... Because you're a Christian, they're going to want to kill you. So what I want you to do is, I tell you, my friends, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body. What you do is get a gun safe. Stock it with semi-automatic AR-15s. Get an arsenal. Get bows and arrows. And you'll be, that's what the Greek says. No. He actually says, um, I don't want you to be afraid, but there are going to be people who kill you. Your temptation, though, is in the middle of that fear, is to do everything in your power to tr- protect yourself. And then while you're spending all your time and energy and attention protecting yourself or presuming to protect yourself so that you feel better, what you're going to forget is you should actually be giving attention to the one who, after you die, can throw you into hell. Merry Christmas. If you have any vaguely... Religious friends who, who talk about how sweet, oh, I respect Jesus, he's a, he's a great teacher. It's like, what do you mean? He's not a great teacher. What great teacher teaches people about hell? says, here's what you should really fear. fear. Fear somebody who can throw you into hell. If Warren Buffett said that, nobody would like him anymore. But no, he's an amazing teacher if there actually is a hell. <laughs> There's actually a God to be taken into account. If your life matters in ways that you don't even begin to imagine. And this life's really short, and so you've got to figure out, how can I be in right connection to this God who can do something with me after? And that all of a sudden takes away all your other fears. If my whole rest of eternity is settled, I don't have to be that afraid now. So he's telling them all this. And he's saying, hey, when you're really scared and you're about to come in front of a Senate Judicial Committee, you're not going to have to prepare for three weeks in advance and read all the the briefings. The Holy Spirit's going to give you words. At that moment, he's going to teach you what to say when you stand before tribunals and judges and courts and kings. And at that moment, some dude comes into the room, busts out and says, hey, Jesus! It's a big crowd. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus says, uh, I, I'm sorry, were we talking about that? I'm, I'm kind of in the middle of a thing here. It's very bizarre. The a greedy interrupter just kind of shouts out like a kid. You know, we do this. Mom, tell her to give me my doll back. We love to tell people in authority what to do to other people, not to us. Tell him to give me my money. Martha did that too. Tell her to help me. People love to tell Jesus what to do for other people. And so 
what's interesting about this is this man says, tell him to divide the inheritance with me, which means probably he was a younger brother. And therefore, his brother would have received, the older brother, you know, the first son, would have received the, the inheritance. And so they've kind of had, in the first time in human history, in the last time since, some kind of inheritance dispute. Where normally, you know, people are like, oh, whatever you want to do, we don't even need a will. It'll all work out fine. We'll divide up the stuff. Everybody will hug after and it'll all be fine. Everybody will be content. Everybody will be for each other. It's fantastic. Well, that was the alternate reality. Sorry. But what's interesting is that when Jesus is told what to do, tell him to divide the inheritance with me, Jesus says, oh, say, that reminds me about greed. He doesn't get into the details of it. He doesn't tell me, can you, uh, can you tell me the facts of your case, please? Can we work through the details of this? How much is involved? How do you want it divided? What's already happened? Is your, are your parents even dead yet? He doesn't get into any of that. He just says, that reminds me about greed. I hope it doesn't hurt your feelings. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed or money sickness. Greed, which preoccupies you with your own wants while dulling your ears to the needs of others. So that's what greed does. That's one of the things he's going to say. Greed preoccupies you with what you want. Everybody's got wants and everybody's got needs. Greed preoccupies you, fills all your attention with what you want. And you want, and you want, and you want, and you want. And all of a sudden, you can't hear anymore what anybody else around you actually needs. It doesn't matter to you. You're, in, you're desensitized to it. And so Jesus says, be on your guard against all kinds of money sickness. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of of his possessions. And it's always fun for me to think about the opposite. When Jesus says a thing like this, your life doesn't consist in the abundance of your possessions, he says it because he knows that that man and everybody in the audience actually comes to believe that our life does, in fact, depend on the abundance of our possessions. That's what we instinctively think, because life is fragile. We know, first century people know, we know it's vulnerable. Things can happen. You can die. You can lose your job. You can lose your health. And Luke Timothy Johnson said, where fear, where fear is strong, the acquisitive instinct grows monstrous. That's what Jesus is identifying here. And so he tells a story. Here's a parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He's a farmer, local agribusiness guy. A bumper crop surplus that year. And he has what, you know, in common parlance, you've heard people say this, white people problems. You hear people of all races say it. Oh, come on, you're seriously complaining about this guy's complaining. What shall I do? I made too much money this year. Ah, What am I going to do with all this money? There's money laying around. Surplus, every place. What am I going to do? I've got too much. Ah, I got it. Here's what I'll do. Well, I don't want to build any crops over my fields because then I'll take away my potential productivity in the coming years. So what I'll do is I'll take my present storehouse. I'll just tear those things and demolish them. Get it right off anyways. And I'll build a newer, bigger ones. And then I can keep all my stuff in there. See, he's been watching. 
He'd been watching the NCAA tournament. He'd been watching all those commercials that told him that his life consisted in working as hard as he could and employing John Hancock Financial Services or whoever else so that one day, one day, he and his wife could wake up in the morning and paddleboard on a lake in Maine after they've sniffed some fair trade coffee. And then they would really be living. I got no stress today. I'm going to be on a lake all day. That's all I'm going to do. I'll store all my grain, all my goods. I'll say to myself, you've got plenty. Finally, you've got enough to retire on. Take it easy. Eat, drink, be merry. And then, but God says to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. And then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. Luke Timothy Johnson says the man was rich because he had a bumper crop. He had lots of crops. He he was a successful businessman. That's what made him rich. What made him a fool was that he actually thought that his assets were going to guard his life. In the Bible, a fool is someone who doesn't know what's going on in the universe. In the Bible, a fool is someone who says in his heart there is no God. In the Bible, a fool is someone whose practices demonstrate that God doesn't actually exist and that God's not actually involved. That's what the Bible would call a fool. It's what we would call a hero. And do you see what makes this so hard? We would call a dude who had a bumper crop and growing, overflowing assets and accounts and enterprising in every direction, we would call that dude who was ready for a retirement, we would call that dude wise. We'd call that dude or dudette savvy. We'd call them smart. We'd call them responsible. And they might be. I don't think the point here is don't save for retirement. It's just that the man didn't think about God once. His greed preoccupied him so that he had all this stuff. And he thought, oh my gosh, I got all this stuff. What am I going to do with all this stuff? I got to figure out how to preserve all this stuff. And it didn't even cross his mind to ask God, hey, why'd you give me all this stuff? Why'd you give me all this stuff? See, when you have a lot, you get preoccupied with your own wanting, which dulls your ears to the needing of others. So what happened the sin of Sodom. You think the sin of Sodom is something else. The scripture says the sin of Sodom is that they were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. It's just what happens. Greedy people and people who want and want and are able to get and get, they tend to all live together. You know, there's not a lot of mixed income neighborhoods in America. Most people live with people who make about what they make. So then all of a sudden... You are around people who have a lot, and so you start to feel actually deprived. Even though you've got more than anybody in the history of the world has ever had, you feel deprived because you don't have a new Suburban, and they do. (laughs) How can I exist without a new Suburban or a new lawn tractor? I need a new BMW. I need a new wardrobe for spring. It's spring. I need a new kitchen. 
I can't do with this TV. What's wrong with, look at this TV. It's only 60 inches. What am I, an ape? You're around other people who have a lot. And so you think, oh, all you know is like, I don't have what they got. And so you want more. And you're not around anybody and you're not in a relationship with anybody who has nothing. And so they don't matter to you. And you're deaf to them. And all of a sudden, you're not rich toward God. You're just preoccupied with getting and keeping, which is what greed is. That's why Dorothy Sayers says it's a a sin of the haves against the have-nots. In fact, that's part of why the Bible is so against it. Because it ruins you. You are not made to be a person who accumulates and accumulates. George MacDonald says the human heart cannot hoard. Hands can, but hearts can't hoard. We're not made to do it, but we keep misplacing our trust, thinking if I can just get enough stuff around me, wouldn't it be nice if you're on your deathbed, if you've got terminal cancer and you're on your deathbed just to be, just to be surrounded by fine china and silver and BMWs? Wouldn't that be a comfort when you're about to die, to get to die in a mansion? I'm being sarcastic problems you really have aren't going to be solved by anything you can get money-wise. They're not going to take away your guilt. They're not going to make you not die. They're not going to help you sleep at night. If you're in terrible pain, if you get a raise, your chronic pain is not going to go away while you sleep. And uh, if you win the lottery and die tomorrow, it won't have helped you. I'm just kind of a philosopher on that. But we get preoccupied with our own wanting, which dulls our ears to the needing of others. And God says to him, you're a fool. You have failed to take, into, take God into account in any of this. Instead of saying, why did I get this bumper crop? Maybe this is good news for the whole community. Maybe my family can prosper from it. But also, maybe in this agrarian subsistence economy where people live day to day to day to day, maybe I could help out. Maybe I could help with the means of production. Maybe I could help the economy. Maybe I could help other people with this. Maybe this gift is a calling. Maybe this extra is a calling. Well, you you don't ever get to something like that unless you take God into the equation. If you think you had something to do with it, look at this crop I produced, then you're going to try to hang on to it. But if you think, look at this crop God gave me, then you're going to say, oh my gosh, why did he give me this? Interestingly enough, this greedy interrupter who interrupts Jesus, he actually tells us how to interrupt our own greed. He is the occasion to tell us how to interrupt our own greed. Because Jesus then goes on with his disciples, and he says, hey, guys, so look, be warned by this fool. The fool, his problem wasn't that he had a surplus. His problem was he never thought of God. His problem was that he thought his surplus was going to quell his anxiety and prolong his life and fortify him against danger. In other words, he thought his full bank account was going to preserve him from death. The fragility of life was going to be taken care of by having enough money. And he says, but I tell you guys, I want to tell you not how to be fools, but how to be wise, how to interrupt your own greed. And one of the ways you interrupt your own greed is you look around as I have and notice that there's ample evidence 
of the world being a place that is God-based. And so Jesus would say, hey, one thing you can do if you want to interrupt your greed is this. The next time you start getting really anxious, most people don't get anxious at 11 in the morning. You get anxious at 11 at night or 2 in the morning. You start worrying like, how am I going to pay for college? Are you looking at your tuition bill and you're like, okay, $485 million, no problem. No problem. We'll take care of that. Should be able to cover that in, what, two, three years? Okay. You start to get worried. How am I going to have enough for the future? Am I going to have enough to pay for school? Am I going to have enough to fix the car? Am I going to have enough to replace the car? Am I going to have enough to get braces? Am I going to have enough to, am I going to have, you know, there's all these things. Life's fragile. Am I going to have enough? Jesus says, here's what I tell you. The next time you get worried, don't run to a spreadsheet first. Walk outside. Join the Sierra Club. Uh, Look at a flower. You're like, oh, come on, hippie Jesus. Are you kidding me? He's like, look at a flower, man. No, because you know why he said look at a flower? Because his view of the economy that we're a part of is not capped. He thinks we're in an enchanted world. That that uh, flora and fauna are elegantly and artistically designed by God, even though this lily of the field that's so beautiful and so splendorously adorned could have a cruel little kid with a golf club knock its head off, and God still made it that pretty. And little birds, they're so foolish that they might just see what seems to be a clear opening and just smash into this glass. Have you been sitting somewhere by a window and a bird just crashes in? God's looking out for those birds, apparently not well in that moment. but uh, No, but he says that birds get fed and flowers get grown and cedars are green and oaks are strong. And they just sat there. They didn't meet with a financial advisor. They didn't stay up all night. They weren't even able to eat organic food. They couldn't. Because they were just stuck there. They're inanimate. But God was tending to them. And he takes care of his created order. And his point is, you think the image of God is not way more valuable than all of that? So next time you're worried, don't check your bank account. Go out and look at a mountain. Consider what happened when you woke up this morning to a universe that you didn't create with lungs full of breath that you didn't generate, with eyes full of sight that you didn't manufacture, with ears full of hearing that you didn't concoct. Look around, he said. Because your Father in Heaven, whose world this is, is caring for all of that, and He wants you to care for Him and know He's caring for you. That's part of how you interrupt your greed. And He says, if any of you, in other words, if you, if you were able by worrying, if you can just like worry yourself into another few minutes on earth, well then go ahead and do it. If any of you have the special talent of like, okay. I'm going to spend the next uh, 30, 35 minutes worrying so that I can live to 120. Well, if you could do that, then Jesus said, go ahead, do it. 
But the problem is, he says, by worrying, none of you can lengthen your body or lengthen your hours. So why are you doing it? You can't, you don't have any, you don't actually control any of that. So that's one thing you do. Look outside. Interrupt your grief. The other thing you do then is you, as you look outside, you say, look at the world. It's a gracious place. We live by gifts. My stuff's on loan, my breath and my check. My home and my heart. They're on loan for me. So when I get a windfall, when I get a raise, can I be glad and say, thank you, Lord, what an amazing gift. Is this meant to be good news only for me or for someone else as well? See, one of the great joys that God gives us when the world becomes a benevolent place and not a dog-eat-dog kind of place, when you realize your Father is caring for you very well. And Jesus says this. He doesn't say, you want to be really responsible? Worry yourself sick, son. He says, take a day off, one out of seven. Give away some of your money. He told a widow who, who was about to die, she's the one who should take care of the prophet. You don't think there was anybody in Zarephath who had more money and more resources and a bigger house and a bigger stash that could have taken care I worry about widows a lot sometimes. I've had them say, here, take this, give it to the church. And I'm like, no, you can't afford that. And Jesus watches widows put money into the temple treasury and like, look at that. Whoa, she just put in everything she had. Oh, drop the mic. And I'm worried for her. Why is he not? Well, he thinks about the world as a different place than I do. He thinks actually God's involved in it. So if you start to think that the world is full of gifts, that God is a gracious God, and that grace is what we live off of, then all of a sudden, when you go to work, you're not like, okay, I know I'm only 30. If I just work hard for 22 more years, maybe I can retire early, and then I can live on a lake in Maine on a paddleboard, because then I'll really be living. So just 22 years of hard work, and just, just drip my teeth for it. What if you could wake up tomorrow and be like, look what God gives me to do today for the benefit of others. This isn't just to pad my pockets or to make me secure for the future. I get to go to work tomorrow, whichever, whatever work my work is, for the good of others is part of how I interrupt my own greed. The other thing you can do is you can, you can start to think about unexpected expenses in your life as God's kind of, his kind of discipline to limit your greed. It's what I've told you before is the Don Dutton principle, one of our elders, who says, every time I start to get a little bit ahead, I get a toothache. I think it's helpful to sometimes imagine when you have exciting weeks where you get a, you know, the power goes out, let's say, for instance, 36 hours, you lose several hundred dollars worth of meat. You know, can't believe lose all this meat, I mean, that's what I feel like inside. And then, like, walking yourself back and thinking, well, it's God's meat, I guess. I mean, he spoiled it. He made the storm come. I kind of think a storm like that, like a snowstorm, a storm that knocks the power out, is God's way of saying, hey, uh, excuse me, sophisticated people, um, you just came home from a short vacation, and when you got home, there was no power, and your cell phones didn't work, and your phone didn't work. 
And so you're like, what do we do now? I guess we die. I mean, what do we, we don't even know what to do. No one knows what to do. All God has to do is send a storm, breathe real loud, and like the whole city and the whole earth shuts down. We don't have electricity. No one knows what to do anymore. We can't eat. We can't cook. We can't live. We can't sit there. It's dark. And so when you get a bill in the mail, it says, hey, your insurance is going to pay $4 on this, and you get to pay 32000 or you, you know, your hot water heater starts to leak, or you get the, you know, a, a tree lands on your house, or AC goes out, or you know, whatever, whatever happened to you this week, or whatever's going to happen to you tomorrow. Sorry, in advance. If you could start to think, well, maybe God's just trying to make it so that I got to keep trusting Him to limit my greed, because most people really just aren't cut out to have a whole lot. You can watch professional athletes and see what happens to somebody who's not been trained in character to handle wealth if you suddenly give them an enormous amount of wealth. Well, they are almost certainly going to destroy themselves and others. It's because we can't handle it. So you recognize God may limit you in some ways. He may limit your income in ways you don't wish, uh, increase your expenses in ways you don't wish. So you got to keep trusting him. And then you limit yourself sometimes by giving. By deciding, I'm going to give away money. I'm going to set a cap. I'm going to live on this much, and when I get my surplus, I'm going to give that away. And that way, I'll stay participating in the needs of others. I'll realize what's given to me is not only for me. I won't be aloof and dull to the needs of others. I'll be rich towards God. I close with this. John Piper tells a story. He doesn't tell a lot of stories, but he told a story 20 years ago at the Passion Conference. A lot of students there. At this point, he was relatively unknown, 54 years old, I think. And he, he wasn't famous yet. He wasn't John Piper. You know, this is kind of like the thing that put him on the evangelical map. And he told this story about this missionary lady who spent her life devoting herself to the poor in Africa somewhere. And, and a doctor who retired and went over and joined her. They were lifelong single women, and they were, they were serving these people. And, and one day they were driving, and the brakes went out of their car. And they went over a cliff, and they died. One of them was in her 80s, and the other was maybe in her 70s. And he says, is that a tragedy? He said, no, that's not a tragedy. Here's a tragedy. He pulls out an article from Reader's Digest, 1998, where it talks about, uh, I, I don't know, I can't remember their names, John and Olivia. He's making up stuff. Is there anybody in here that, who has that combination? I hope not. And the story was about how when he was 59 and she was 52, they were able to retire. And so now they spend all their time collecting seashells and playing softball. And he said, that's the tragedy. People with 30 years of health who are not thinking about meeting God and standing before him. And he said, what did you do with the one life I gave you? They said, look at my seashells. Look at my swing. I've got an amazing softball swing. He's like, what? you're 59 and you've got an amazing softball swing? That's what you've got? 
He said, that's the tragedy. Don't waste your life. Greed would say, waste your life by appearing to make a life for yourself. But Jesus says, that's fool's talk. Your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Jesus demonstrates it because he gave up the possession of heaven, the glories of it, so he could come here to earn it for us. And he says, do you want life? Do you want security? you want approval? you want freedom from fear? You need to link up with me. Anything else you can hang on to can be taken away from you. The power can go out. Sickness can come. The lights can be turned out on your life. But if you believe in me, you'll live forever. And right now, today, you've got power to participate in God's benevolence to the world. So interrupt your greed by giving, by sharing the needs of others, by believing that all of life is a gracious gift from God. Amen.